0: Howdy and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. It's February 2016, which is 180 years from that fateful February in 1836 when the Texian defenders assembled in the only fort on the road from Presidio del Rio Grande, which is now the town of Guerrero, Coahuila, in Mexico, through Bejar and on to Harrisburg in the Texian settlements. That fort was an old mission called San Antonio de Valero, and we now call it the Alamo. As we enter the high holy days of Texas history, I thought today we'd set the scene in Behar leading up to the Alamo siege and the freedom of Texas not two months later. I'm going to briefly introduce you to three of the most famous characters in Texas history. I say briefly because since this is the first year of Wise About Texas, I thought I'd spend the 180th anniversary of the Revolution going over the events more than focusing on an in-depth analysis of the characters. We'll have future years for that. So let's go back 180 years to San Antonio de Bejar and get Wise About Texas. Recall in Episode 5 of Wise About Texas when we talked about the siege and Battle of Bejar. In December 1835, the Texians forced Santa Ana's brother-in-law, General Martin Perfecto de Cos, to surrender Bejar and head south. Prior to that victory, the Texians held a consultation in San Felipe and established a governmental structure, including Henry Smith as provisional governor and Sam Houston as commander of the army. After Behar was taken, everyone exhaled and began looking for the next steps. Several Tejano and exiled Mexican officials advocated to Governor Smith that the Texians mount a campaign against Santa Ana and attack Matamoros. The Texian council enthusiastically supported the measure, but Governor Smith vetoed it, choosing not to trust the Mexican officials. The council promptly overrode the veto and issued instructions to Sam Houston to mount the expedition to Matamoros. Well, Sam Houston was nothing if not an independent thinker. He issued orders to Jim Bowie to organize a campaign against Matamoros, but the orders weren't very enthusiastic. Sensing this, the council bypassed him and ordered Smith to give the order for the expedition to Matamoros, Smith, of course, was opposed to the expedition, so he did absolutely nothing. The council then ordered the commander of the volunteers in San Antonio, Frank Johnson, to concentrate forces in Goliad and start the expedition. Governor Smith convinced Johnson not to do it, so the council stripped Johnson of command and gave it to Colonel James Fannin. Johnson then changed his mind again, and he got the command back. As you can tell, it was chaotic. The council purported to impeach Governor Smith at this time, although the organizing documents of the New Texas government didn't provide for impeachment. The council told Lieutenant James Robinson to take over as governor, but guess what? Governor Smith wouldn't leave. In fact, Smith wouldn't give over several of the key documents of the consultation and refused to give up the fancy new wooden seal of Texas. In fact, he threatened to, quote, shoot any SOB, close quote, that tried to take the seal from him. Luckily for Smith... After impeaching him, the council left town. So Smith just stuck around and acted like the governor, and people generally listened to him. One man that listened to him was William Barrett Travis, who Smith ordered to go to San Antonio and take command of the garrison. The political chaos would soon prove fatal to the Alamo defenders. Now, the Texas Army is a whole other subject. Recall from Episode 5 about the Battle of Behar that keeping the Texas Army together was a delicate dance. The independent spirit of these frontiersmen in the army carried all the way down to the day-to-day conduct. So once the victory had been won in Behar, the army was ready to go home and take care of their farms and families. So they did. There were roughly 100 people left in Behar. Now there were about 500 in Goliad, because remember, the orders concerning the Matamoros expedition concentrated the forces in Goliad. The rest of the men had scattered around the settlements. We also had several commanders. Houston was supposedly in charge, but didn't have anyone to command or Johnson had had the command in Goliad. Travis had been ordered to San Antonio, but James Neal was there and in command of the regulars, so it was a mess. In the meantime, Santa Ana was on the march. I might mention a couple of things that contributed to this situation as we found it in early February 1836. First, in March or early April 1835, Santa Ana issued a decree that limited the size of state militias, like the one in Coahuila, Tejas. To one male for every 500 residents. That move, of course, was designed to limit resistance to his dictatorship. Another thing Santa Ana did was to send his brother in law and the commander of the garrison at San Antonio, General Cos, to Monclova to shut down the legislature of the state of Coahuila y Tejas. Now you can imagine the distrust that that engendered among the residents, including the Texians. Now that the Texians had taken Bejar, They were meeting to form a rebellious government, and they were arming themselves. So Santa Ana felt like he had to crush any uprising, so to Texas he marched. Now Santa Ana had about 6,500 men dedicated to the Texas campaign, but they weren't all in one place. There were two roads into Texas in 1836, one from Matamoros up the coast through Goliad, and the other from Guerrero to San Antonio de Bejar and on to the Texas settlements. He sent General Jose Urrea along the lower road and eventually to Goliad. Santa Anna took his column into San Antonio de Bejar. Now there were some supporting companies that followed based on how much food and forage they could manage on their journey, which affected how close they were to the main bodies of the army. Santa Anna force-marched his troops at a very quick pace and would eventually reach Behar well ahead of when the Texians expected him. So back to the Texians. The force at Goliad, remember, was eager to launch an expedition to Matamoros. This was absolute folly to the more thoughtful crowd consulting at San Felipe. The Goliad garrison actually declared independence from Mexico in December 1835, which absolutely mortified the San Felipe consultants who were trying to keep the Mexican Federalists on their side. Sam Houston actually planned to march on Matamoros, but was at the time at Washington on the Brazos. Lucky for everyone, the multiple commands that I mentioned before of Bowie, Fannin, and Johnson, and Neal confused things enough to cause some delay. When the enthusiastic volunteers left Behar for Goliad, including Jim Bowie, by the way, the remaining commander at Behar, Lieutenant Colonel James Neal, had only about 100 men left. He remembered that Coase had lost Behar with multiple times that number, so he thought the only effective defense would be mounted from the Alamo. He also faced a provisions problem. When the Matamoras crew left town, they took everything they could carry from the Behar garrison, which left Neal with basically nothing. As he pleaded for supplies from the government, that, as we now know, was horribly split. Sam Houston arrived in Goliad purportedly to command the Matamoras expedition. Now Houston was pleased to find Bowie at Goliad, but he was also dismayed to learn that a Dr. James Grant had declared himself the acting commander-in-chief. Houston couldn't do much about that, given the rank and file's fervor for battle, but he could, and he did, send Bowie with some men to go evacuate Neal from San Antonio. Houston believed that there was no way Behar could be held. Now, there's a common story that Houston ordered the Alamo destroyed and the garrison to evacuate. That story was spread, uh, actually, by Houston himself. The truth is that Houston requested that the government authorize the destruction of the Alamo. And in a rare moment of unity, both Smith and the council refused Houston's request, so Behar would be defended. In the meantime, Houston joined the troops on the march toward Refurio on their way to Matamoros and did his best to gain the men's goodwill toward his command. Now during this time, the men also learned that Smith had purportedly been impeached by the council and that Fannin had been given command. Houston rode among the men and freely discussed the folly of attacking Matamoros and wondered aloud, very loud as a matter of fact, whether there were ulterior motives on the part of James Grant, who reportedly had some estates in Matamoros that he could recover if the effort were victorious. So there was some intrigue, and Houston did his best to make sure everyone was talking about it. Late in January, Houston left and rode back to report to the maybe deposed, maybe not Henry Smith, who was still acting as if he were governor no matter what, which he may in fact have been, which was so confusing, Smith ordered Houston to go visit his old friend, the Cherokee Chief Bowles, and enlist the Cherokee's help in the Texas Revolution. In the meantime, Neal had been busy fortifying the Alamo. Coase had left his cannons when he left town. Neal had them hauled into the Alamo, including a large 18-pounder. Now, Green Jameson, who was a lawyer who had settled in Brazoria in 1830, was the chief engineer of the Alamo defenses. He had most of the guns installed in strategic positions along the walls. Bowie arrived at the Alamo in late January with Houston's apparent order to do something with the fort, only to find Neal and his men hard at work on these fortifications. Now, remember, Bowie had been a resident of Behar and a member by marriage of one of the most prominent families in town. Remember also from Episode 5 of Wise About Texas when we learned about the Battle of Concepcion. Bowie had been the tactician in that fight and had used the natural advantages of his chosen battlefield, the nearby river and trees, to tremendous advantage. Without any artillery, Bowie, Fannin, and 90 men had whipped hundreds of General Cosa's best infantry and had captured a Mexican cannon in the process, and they'd done it with only one casualty. I mentioned in that episode that the Texians would be emboldened by that victory and their dominance of the Mexican army, even though the Mexican army had superior numbers. Well, that bold feeling came home to roost in the Alamo, at least for Jim Bowie, when he saw what Neal had done with the place. The more he thought about it, the more Bowie thought Behar might be the right place to make a stand. The Alamo looked eminently defensible, and with all the artillery they had, the Texians, though they were small in number, must have felt pretty formidable. As we know, they were formidable, but the numbers ended up being impossible. In any event, Bowie wrote to Smith and told him that the Alamo should be defended at all costs. Now, I want to take a minute and give you a quick introduction to Jim Bowie. Bowie was already famous when he, before he started to become a part of the Texas Revolution. He was born in 1796 in what is now Simpson County, Kentucky. The present-day uh, seat of Simpson County is Franklin, Kentucky, by the way and a portion of the counties on the Tennessee border. By 1801, he had moved with his family to Louisiana in what's now Catahoula Parish. Bowie is described as open and frank, but an absolute terror when angered. Bowie fought in the War of 1812, and it's said that he and his brother Reason, spelled R-E-Z-I-N. And if there are any expectant mothers listening to this, I think Reason is another name that's vastly underused. So I encourage you to name your baby boys Reason. Anyway, Reason and Jim Bowie were on their way to join Andrew Jackson at New Orleans when the war ended. After 1812, Bowie went into the slave trade with the noted Galveston pirate Gene Lafitte. The Bowies amassed about 65000 in that slave trade, which would be well over million a million dollars today. so they quit. The Bowie brothers were also land speculators, and it's reported that not everyone with whom they did business was happy about the way the transactions were conducted. In 1827, over a business deal... Bowie got involved in what's now called the sandbar fight. In that fight, Bowie's target was a sheriff named Wright. In the course of the fight, Bowie was shot three times and stabbed several times before finally plunging the blade of his now-famous large butcher knife into Wright's unfortunate chest. Bowie was a tough guy. By 1836, Bowie had settled in Behar and had married Ursula Viramendi, who was the daughter of the vice governor. He had amassed a lot of land, although many of his claims were alleged to be fraudulent, Ursula and Bowie's children, Ursula herself and their children, would die in a cholera epidemic while they were in Monclova, Mexico, in 1833. Now, earlier I mentioned that Santa Ana ordered General Coast to dis- dissolve the government at Monclova, but he also ordered the arrest of any Texan that was doing business there. Well, Bowie was there at that time, so he fled back to Texas. He then started advocating for war with Mexico and returned with some militia to his old home at Bejar and seized some Mexican arms. Later that year, Bowie would join the Texan Army, and you can listen to Episode 5 of Wise About Texas to learn about his p- participation at the Battle of Concepcion and the Siege of Behar. So let's return to Smith's receipt of Bowie's recommendation to defend Bahar. Smith took Bowie seriously, and he ordered William Barrett Travis, also a veteran of the Battle of Behar, to raise a company of men and go reinforce the Alamo garrison. Well, Travis, unfortunately, was only able to raise about 29 men, and he asked Smith to let him off the hook as the recruiting officer. Smith would not, and Travis, begrudgingly, did his duty, taking his volunteers to Behar. Travis arrived at the Alamo on February 3rd, 1836. Now let's talk about, briefly, William Barrett Travis. Travis was born in Saluda County, North Carolina in 1809. He was childhood friends with eventual fellow Alamo defender James Butler Bonham, Travis went to school in Claiborne, Alabama, and studied law there after graduation. He married a lady named Rosanna Cato in 1828, and they had a son named Charles Edward Travis in 1829. Travis had started a newspaper in Claiborne, the Claiborne Herald, and became an adjutant in the Alabama militia. Only a year later, Travis abandoned his wife and son and an unborn daughter and fled Alabama. Now, a commonly told story is that he doubted the parentage of his unborn daughter and killed a man because of it. There's not a lot of hard evidence, though, of what really happened, so we'll never know for sure. Travis immigrated to Texas in 1831, about a year after immigration was declared illegal by the Mexican government, and he alleged that he was single. He began practicing law in Anahuac, where he became associated with the War Party, which was a group that opposed the anti-immigration law of 1830. Now, Anahuac was the scene of several of the early disputes between Texas and Mexico, One of the first significant disputes in Anahuac arose when Travis was engaged as a lawyer to assist with the return of runaway slaves being harbored by a Mexican government official, originally from Kentucky, named John Bradburn. Travis passed a note to Bradburn saying his client was returning with a large force to liberate his slaves, which turned out to be a prank. In return for the prank, Bradburn had Travis and his law partner Patrick Jack arrested and imprisoned at Anahuac. The citizens assembled and demanded that Travis and Jack be freed. The citizens drafted what were called the Turtle Baye Resolutions, pledging loyalty to the Mexican Constitution of 1824, which will become very important later, so remember the Constitution of 1824. One group of citizens sailed for Brazoria to get a cannon and bring it back to Anahuac, so you can imagine what they were going to do. The Mexican commander at Nacogdoches had to travel down to Anahuac and eventually ordered Travis and Jack to be released. But the incident led to several armed clashes known as the Anahuac Disturbances. There were also armed fights at Velasco, which we discussed in Episode 4, and at Nacogdoches. So Travis left town and set up his law practice in the capital of San Felipe de Austin. There he met a lady named Rebecca Cummings and promised to marry her. He was in the middle of divorce proceedings filed by his wife in Alabama, and though those proceedings were final in 1835, Travis probably never knew that. And he certainly never married Rebecca Cummings. Now, a new Mexican garrison had set up in Anahuac, and Travis was ordered by Stephen F. Austin to command an assault against that garrison. He did so successfully, and he captured the Mexican garrison. The Texans who wanted peace started calling Travis a troublemaker, and General Coase ordered him to surrender. Now, he didn't, of course, and eventually joined the militia in Behar, he then returned to the San Felipe consultation where the events I described earlier occurred that led him to return with his volunteers to Behar. Returning to February 3rd, 1836, Travis arrives at the Alamo with his recruits and the regulars there are commanded by James Neal. Now I want to mention two quick things about James Neal. First, he's the man who fired the cannon in Gonzales on October 2, 1835. The Mexican army came to take the cannon from the settlers who made the now-famous flag, inviting him to try and do just that. It said, come and take it. When the Mexicans did try to come and take it, Neil fired the cannon at him. Another interesting thing Neil did while in Bahar in early 1836 is to make a peace treaty with the Comanche Indians. Now, it must have worked because there weren't any Comanche raids that we know of in Bejar in 1836. Now, unfortunately, in February, Neil's family became very sick, and Neal left Bahar and the Alamo to take care of them shortly after Travis's arrival, and that left the Alamo garrison with two commanders. The volunteers at the Alamo had been used to James Neal, and they were not quick to warm to Travis and his regulars blowing in and taking over. The men insisted on an election for the commander position, and Travis just had to let it happen. The election results were much like a congressional vote in Congress along party lines. The volunteers voted for Jim Bowie, and the regulars voted for Travis but there were way more volunteers. Bowie celebrated his election as commander in town, and by all accounts, it was a huge throwdown. He, even, he was so happy, he even freed some people from the local jail. Travis was dismayed by his behavior and wrote government Smith, Governor Smith that he wouldn't be responsible for Bowie's drunken escapades. Bowie woke up with what was no doubt a mighty hangover, but he also gathered his wits and made a peace offering to Travis. He suggested that Travis command the regulars and he, Bowie, would command the volunteers and they'd co-sign all the orders until Neil returned. Travis accepted this peace gesture 180 years ago yesterday, February 14, 1836. Now there was a third fellow in the Alamo at this time who commanded considerable attention and respect, even without official government position. On February 8, 1836, along with a few other volunteers from Tennessee, there arrived at the Alamo a national celebrity. He was a former congressman and famous frontiersman named David Crockett. Crockett was born in Greene County, Tennessee in 1786. He later moved to Franklin County, Tennessee with his wife, Polly, and their two sons. Not far, actually, from my great-great-grandfather's home, incidentally. Crockett fought with Andrew Jackson in some of the Indian Wars, and he and Polly had a daughter, Margaret. Now, Polly died soon after Margaret's birth, leaving Crockett a single father. He married a widow with two children named Elizabeth Patton in 1815 and moved to Lawrence County, Tennessee. In Lawrence County, Crockett became a justice of the peace, then a town commissioner of the town of Lawrenceburg, and was elected colonel in the militia that same year. He was then elected to the Tennessee State Legislature, where he served two terms. He ran for Congress, but was defeated in 1825. He found himself in Memphis in 1827 and was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives that year and was re-elected in 1829. But he opposed the immensely popular Andrew Jackson and was defeated in the 1831 election. Now, during this time, his legend as a frontiersman was growing, often fueled by Crockett himself, A play called The Lion of the West was written about him for a New York audience in 1831. There was a book written about him in 1833, and then some comic books were produced about his life, which were mainly tall tales. His fame, though, propelled him back into Congress in 1833. Then he published his own autobiography. He went on a tour of the East, plugging his book and his adventures and his political career, but he was defeated in the 1835 election. Embittered by that defeat, he decided to explore the West, including Texas. In a now famous quote, he told a group assembled in a bar to toast his departure that, quote, You may all go to hell, and I will go to Texas. And so he did. He arrived at the Alamo on February 8th, 1836. This episode is being released on February 15th, 2016. One hundred and eighty years ago today, Crockett and his men were in Behar. Bowie and Travis had just agreed to share command of the garrison at the Alamo, and Santa Ana was on the march. In a mere eight days, the Mexican force would reach Bejar, and the settlement of the Texas question would begin. Now we come to the part of the episode called Getting There, where I tell you how to go see some of the places mentioned in the episode. First, since this episode set the scene for the Battle of the Alamo, we'll start there. The Alamo is, of course, in San Antonio, Texas, right downtown, But this is wise about Texas, so let's get into some detail. I mentioned in the episode that there was a big 18-pound cannon that James Neal set up on the wall of the Alamo. If you will walk across Alamo Street from Alamo Plaza, you'll see a gap between the buildings across from the Alamo. You'll see a waterfall and a staircase down to the Riverwalk. On your left at street level is a plaque and a slightly raised area where that 18-pound cannon was located. That was the southwest corner of the original Alamo Plaza in 1836. Next let's talk about William Barrett Travis's law office in the capital of Austin's colony, San Felipe de Austin. You can visit the historic town site by getting on I-10 and exiting Farm Road 1458 to the north. Right as you approach the Brazos River, the historic site will be on your left. Park in the parking area, turn around, Look across the road and slightly to your right back toward I-10. Just across the fence would be Lot 50, which is where Travis's law office stood. FM 1458 runs right between Lots 51 and 52 as far as I can tell from the old maps. While you're at the historic site, by the way, ask the great staff at the site for the location of Lot 566. That's where the consultation was held. It's just toward the river and to the left of the Visitor's Center as you stand at the front door of the Visitor's Center looking toward the river. Lastly, I mentioned the disturbances in Anahuac. If you go to Fort Anahuac Park in Anahuac, Texas, you'll see multiple historical markers recounting the events that occurred there. It's located at 1704 South Main Street in Anahuac and offers a beautiful bay view, especially in Sunset. The location was where in 1830 a Mexican general named Tehran built a fort to enforce those Mexican anti immigration laws. It's also approximately the location where Travis was held prisoner. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. We've set the scene for the siege and battle of the Alamo and the subsequent events of the Texas Revolution. We're entering the high holy days of Texas history, so you can expect lots of information. About the events leading to the Battle of San Jacinto and Texas's independence, and maybe I'll throw in a couple of bonus episodes along the way. I hope you'll like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page, and be sure and follow the show on Twitter at Wise About Texas. We're also now on Instagram at Wise About Texas, and I'll be sure and post photos there as well as updating the photos on the website. Well, thanks again for all the great feedback. Please take a minute to leave a review on iTunes so other Texas history lovers can find the show. Until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.